Welcome, everybody. Glad you're here. You can find a seat. Um, we like to take the time to have an extended greeting to say hi to one another. Um, you know, fellowship is one of those things that the Lord commands us to do. Like we're supposed to fellowship with one another. And that's one of the reasons why we take that time in service as an act of worship uh, so that you guys can say hi and uh, encourage one another. Um, we are continuing in our series um, in 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and 2 Chronicles. Um, our series is called In the Lord's Sight. If you haven't been here, this is going to be actually our last week for this series. We're going to pick it back up next summer. I told you last week, in hindsight, I should have just done like 1 Kings and half of 2 Chronicles because they kind of go together and then 2 Kings, the other half of 2 Chronicles, but you learn. So um, we're going to stop that and then next week we're going to pick up 2 Corinthians and we'll be in 2 Corinthians through the entire fall. And so I encourage you to read 2 Corinthians, study it on your own, look through it, prepare your heart as we work through Paul's letter to a church in Corinth, a place probably very similar to Bloomington in a lot of ways. And so um, we want to look at that uh, this fall. We've been talking about the idea of in 1, 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles that the phrase in the Lord's sight or in the Lord's eyes is used over and over again like 70 sometimes, because it's this idea that God is constantly looking for those who are seeking him. And he's constantly calling people out and saying, hey, you're not seeking me. They are seeking me. So the Lord isn't like a deist. He's not off and kind of his hands off in the world. God is actively participating, actively looking, actively wanting to engage with those whose hearts are his and those who are searching for him. And 2 Kings, and 1st and 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles lays that out during the kingship of Israel. Remember where we're at in the story. Israel's been delivered from slavery in Egypt. Okay, they've been given the promised land. They're in the promised land. There was a period of judges because they rejected God and rejected his covenant. And God said, if you do these certain things, then judgment's going to come on you to discipline you because a good father disciplines his children. And so you have this period of the judges that comes and there's these random judges that fight for Israel and fight against other nations. But then Israel says, hey, we want a king. And God said, I don't want you to have a king. I want to be your king. And they said, no, we want a king. God knew they would want a king. So he prophesied in the book of Deuteronomy that, hey, when you want a king, and they said, oh, we'll never want a king. He's like, yeah, 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 whatever. When you want a king <laughs> and you take one, and I give you one, here's all the regulations that are going to come because you have a king, and it's not going to go well for you. It's not going to go well if you get a king, but you're going to want a king, so I'm going to let you have one, and then that's going to cause you to cry out to me. It's going to cause you to see the wickedness in your world. It's going to cause you to see the, with your eyes, see the, the, the disaster, and then it's going to cause you to cry out for me to come and show you who I am and my ways. And that's where we find ourselves. David was the king, and now we find ourselves in a split kingdom, okay? And in the split kingdom, you have Rehoboam. Rehoboam was Solomon's son, so David had a son named Solomon. Solomon had a son named Rehoboam. Rehoboam had a choice to continue in the way of his father Solomon, which was wicked in many ways. Solomon builds this huge temple. God never asked for a temple. He built it anyway. That's a long story we've talked about before. Rehoboam is now deciding whether he wants to continue to tax the people 
heavily to keep the army up and to keep the temple up and to keep everything up, which God told his people, if you get a king, taxes are going to come with it. It's going to be bad for you. Rehoboam decides to double down. He listens to his young advisors. He doubles down on persecuting the people and doubles down on taxes. Does this sound familiar? I mean, that's pretty much why we have the United States of America. Is because there was a king who doubled down on taxes and we said, forget you. That's what Jeroboam did. Jeroboam took 10 tribes. He separated to the northern kingdom. And God said, Jeroboam, I'll bless you as long as you allow my people to obey the Old Testament, allow them to travel to Jerusalem, still allow them to go into Rehoboam's empire, still pay taxes in Jerusalem. If you still allow them to follow me, I will bless this split that you're doing. And Jeroboam said, great, I'll do that. And then he did the complete opposite. He made two places of worship, one in the north in Dan, and he made another one in Bethel. Then he created a border so people couldn't travel and worship in Jerusalem. And the kings after him created this border so they couldn't go to Jerusalem, okay? And Jeroboam rejected the Lord. He made two golden calves to put in Dan and Bethel and called the golden calves Yahweh. That's exactly what they did in Egypt. Like, do you, these patterns that we see in First and Second Kings and Second Chronicles, they're the same patterns that we're still dealing with today. Like these patterns don't change for us, folks. When you read the Bible, it's so accurate and so amazing because you read it and you're like, wait a minute, that's exactly, now, that's, now, that's here. over and over and over. And God is in heaven saying, will anyone listen to me? Will anyone read my word and take me for what I say? Will anyone seek me? I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm sending my spirit out, I'm drawing people to myself. How will you respond? And so now we find ourselves, it's many generations later, and it's a mess. You've got the northern kingdom and southern kingdom that have tried to come together under a couple of kings, Joram and Ahab, or Jehoshaphat, and then Joram and Ahab, and now they've tried to kind of bring the kingdom together through intermarriage, so they're giving their sons and daughters in marriage north and south, so that they can, you know, now we have peace because we're all good, but it's not all good, because now the southern kingdom is just as corrupt and evil as the northern kingdom. Now they're doing Baal worship. Now they're doing idolatry. Now they're doing everything. So you think you're going to bring peace. And we talked about that last week, right? Do you come in peace? And so God raises up this commander named Jehu. And he asks Jehu through the prophet Elijah who hands off the mantle to Elisha and anoints Jehu. And he tells Jehu, you are going to be my instrument of discipline to my people. And specifically to Ahab's household because he is so wicked and his entire house is so wicked, including those that live in the southern kingdom who have corrupted my people in Jerusalem. And so I'm raising you up to be my warrior to set things right. See, that's a hard teaching for us in modern Christianity. Because in modern Christianity, we don't like that version of God. We like the, he's all nice and peaceful and wonderful version. We don't like the idea of a God that's going to come in wrath and discipline and correct and say, no, this is how it's going to be. And a matter of fact, most of us refuse to even go to churches that might mention that because they're judgmental. And while there can be some legalism and judgmentalism, we have pushed the pendulum so far away from that now 
that when we study 2 Corinthians, we'll talk about it, you're going to see the wickedness that the church in Corinth was adopting that was just like the wickedness that they were adopting in the northern and southern kingdom of Israel. What ends up happening to the northern and southern kingdom of Israel is eventually God sends outside nations to discipline and punish his nation. And they are dispelled from the land. They are slaughtered. The ten tribes of the northern kingdom disappear into antiquity. And God holds a remnant of Judah in the southern kingdom. And it is so tragic. And it took like 400 years for all this to happen. Four or 500 years. See, God's really patient. God, God, God will extend it. And that's where we find ourselves. So now, last week, we looked at the fact that Jehu started to march out. He was the Lord's discipline tool to his people. And the question people that Jehu was asking, or the people were asking Jehu is, do you come in peace? Do you come in peace? And we looked at the fact that Jesus himself said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. I came to separate so that you can know what's right in God's eyes and what's not right in God's eyes. Now, that doesn't mean that God's given us the sword. So be careful with that, right? Everybody wants to think they've got a sword, that they're the judge. We need to be very careful with how we handle authority, how we submit to it, how we stand up against it. We have to be very careful because most of the time, like Jehoshaphat, most of the time, like Jeroboam, we stand up to authority wrongly and we adopt and come under authority wrongly because we have selfish motives for what we want see Jehu doesn't have a selfish motive Jehu is just obeying the Lord Jehu is just a faithful commander who's done what God's asked him to do so this week after last week he says do you come in peace this week the question that Jehu asks is this is your heart one with me is your heart one with me You need to ask that of yourself. I need to ask that of myself before God. Is my heart one with the Lord? Is my heart one with those who know the Lord and follow the Lord? Am I looking for those who truly are seeking God's favor? Is my heart one with the Lord? Is your heart one with the Lord? Because that's what Jehu is going to do. So let's dive into the story. I've caught you up. It says, since Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria, remember, Ahab had a wife Jezebel. That was a disaster. We looked at that last week, but he also had other wives. He had all these sons, right? That's what the kings did. They married all these women, and then they had all these kids so that they could propagate and take over, put all their kids in charge, and keep power and control. That doesn't sound familiar at all, does it, in our modern age? (laughs) it goes on it says Jehu wrote letters and sent them to Samaria to the rulers of Jezreel to the elders and to the guardians of Ahab's sons and he sent these sons he sent these leaders letters and he said let's fight Jehu literally sends letters this is not the way you carry out a military campaign You do not carry out a military campaign successfully by telling them, get ready, I'm coming. That's not how it works. You you sneak attack. You, You get your army and you surround. You don't warn ahead of time. Guess what? That's not how God fights. 
God throughout all the Bible always warns so that we're without excuse and we don't think, well, you tricked me, God. You didn't tell me. God's like, no, 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 no. I tell you up front. And so Jehu literally says, come out and fight me. If you think God's with you, if you think this is your kingdom, if you think your daddy and your granddaddy passed this down to you, then come fight me for it. Because God has anointed me. You know what they do? They refuse to fight. They go and hide. They hunker down. They try to be safe. They try to make a treaty and back off. They go into their cities to hide out. So then Jehu writes letters to the cities. He goes to the city where they're hiding out and he says, hey, bring me their heads if you're with me. Are you, is your heart one with me or not? If your heart's one with me, then bring me their heads. And what happens? The people in the city cut all the heads off of Ahab's, Ahab's sons and family. And they bring them out to Jehu. And then Jehu says, bring me the heads. He says, bring me the heads of them. And they bring the heads out. And you think, man, that's crazy. Let me explain something to you. This is exactly what David did to Goliath. And we love to celebrate David and Goliath. See, it's interesting. God's people, we all get excited when the world gets punished. When the world gets their heads chopped off. But when it's people we don't think should get their heads chopped off. Oh God, you don't have permission to do that. We celebrate Goliath. David beat Goliath. He chopped his head off. He carried it around. That's the part of the story we don't tell kids. We should. And he, you know, showed everyone this giant head of this nine-foot dude, right? And we celebrate that. We don't have, everybody wants to be David. But then we come here and it's like, well, can God do this? Yeah, he can. And he has been warning his people for hundreds, if not thousands of years, this is exactly what would happen to you if you don't listen. It's not like God didn't spend a thousand years from Deuteronomy and Leviticus and Numbers where he warns, telling them that this is what was going to happen. He's been telling them this is going to happen. And they refuse to repent because they go, well, it hasn't happened yet. And then the next generation comes along and they go, well, it didn't happen to my dad, so it won't happen to me. Then the next generation comes along and they go, well, it didn't happen to my granddad or my dad, so it must not happen to me. And God, in his patience, we mistake that for permission. And it's God's patience that's allowing these generations to continue. It's not his permission. He's just being patient, hoping that someone will repent, someone will turn to him, someone's heart will be one with him. And then you have a Jehu that rises up and calls forth a decision. You're not going to sit on the fence anymore. You're either with God and you believe that I've been anointed by him or you're not. It's just that, it's just that simple. See, Jehu is a picture actually of Jesus. And we're going to look at this in a moment. But it's the picture of Jesus because Jesus is going to come someday in Revelation like this. With a sword. And he is going to end it all. And time's up for people. And the first Seven things he judges are seven churches in the book of Revelation. See, judgment begins in the house of the Lord before the judgment goes out to the world. Why? Because God wants the world to see that I don't let my kids get by with anything. I love them and I discipline them and I love you, which is why I'm disciplining you. That's our God. So it goes on and it says, they brought the heads of the sons out 
And then it goes on to say this. The next morning when he went out and stood at the gate, Jehu said to all the people, you are innocent. It was I who conspired against my master. That's Ahab because Jehu was Ahab's general. Conspired against my master and killed him. But who struck down all these? Know then that not a word the Lord spoke against the house of Ahab will fail. Remember, God has been prophesying against Ahab's house over and over and over again. We have looked at those passages all through the book of Kings. God has been warning, this is going to happen to you. And Ahab's like, nah, it won't happen to me. Nah, it won't happen to me. Now it's happened. And then he says, for the Lord has done what he promised through his servant Elijah, the prophet Elijah. So Jehu killed all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel, all his great men, close friends and priests, leaving no survivors. When he left there, he found Jehonadab, son of Rechab, coming to meet him. He greeted him and asked him, is your heart one with me? Jehu's like, look, I know what's happened just seems awful and terrible. And what are we going to do? Ahab's family's been, and Jehu just says, do you want to follow me? See, Jesus said the same thing to people in his day. Jesus would give these crazy hard teachings to people like eat my flesh and drink my blood. He taught that one time. And they're like, "Uh, we're Jewish. We don't do that. But he was seeing, he was testing. Do you understand that you need a perfect sacrifice? You need You actually need a human sacrifice and that the sacrifices of the Old Testament were just substitutes for the perfect human sacrifice, which is me. The Son of God, the 100% man, 100% God. And so literally, Jesus would ask people, come and follow me. Is your heart one with me or not? He just asked it. Which is it? Do you believe me or are you going to believe everything else? And then he says, it is. Jehonadab replied. Jehu said, if it is, give me your hand. You have to understand that when you're in a chariot or when you're standing and you reach for your hand, in that culture you would do the right hand, right? Because that was the sign of togetherness. And like it's a covenant, that idea of a covenant. We're grabbing hands. When we shake hands today, used to be you make a business deal by shaking hands. That was a covenant. Nowadays, we've got to have legal documents that are 100 pages long, and we have to actually sign a document that says that that was our signature on that document so that the signature on this document is on that document. That's how far gone we've gone from just, if it's with me, then come with me. Follow me. See, that's what Jesus did. He said, if you're with me, then follow me. I extend my hands for you. Follow me. And so that's exactly what he does. So he gave him his hand. He pulled him up into the chariot with him. I mean, picture this. Someday Jesus is going to come back and he's going to invite us in the same way. That we're going to be with him. He's going to pull us up and be like, it's time to go. It's such a picture of exactly what's going to happen at the end of all days. Jehu is this picture of Jesus that's beautiful. And someday he's going to give us horses to ride at the end of Revelation it talks about. And we're going to ride with Christ. And he pulls us up. We can't pull ourselves up. We, we deserve to die because guess what? Jehonadab never stood up against Ahab. He went along with it. But now it's time to make a decision. And so you may have been going along with things for a long time. Listen, God tells you today's the day to make a decision. 
goes on, Deuteronomy, this is the warning. He's like, how can God do all this? Well, look at the warning that God gives. This is the command, the statutes and ordinances, the Lord your God has instructed me to teach you so that you may follow in them in the land you're about to enter and possess. So God's giving them a land and he goes, here's the rules for this land I'm giving you, right? You buy a house and you get a mortgage, there's a bunch of rules to it. You gotta have home insurance, you gotta pay your taxes, you gotta pay the bank on time. There's all kinds of rules when you buy something. Listen, I'm giving you a land, you're going to enter that land, and here are the obligations if you enter this covenant with me. He says, do this so that you may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life by keeping his statutes and commands I am giving you, your son and your grandson, so that you may have a long life. In other words, I don't want to bring justice and wrath until I have to. Extend righteousness and peace and grace as long as you can. Because there's coming a day. And then he says, listen, Israel, and be careful to follow them so that you may prosper and multiply greatly. Because Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. Listen, we don't have a land we're promised anymore on this earth. God fulfilled his promise by giving the Israelites their land. Last time I checked, you're not Jewish. So you're not under that land promise, but we have a new land promise, and that new land promise is heaven and a new Jerusalem that God says we are storing up treasures there in our new land. We're ambassadors here. We're slaves here working to store up there so that that can come back someday, and then God will give us the earth, a new heaven and a new earth. This is a picture of the ultimate healing, the ultimate fulfillment. And then he says, listen, Israel. Do you know what Israel means, the word Israel? It means wrestles with God or struggles with God. When God decided to rename Jacob after Jacob wrestled with him and then he heard he made his hip limp, so he had to limp the rest of his life, okay? After he did that, he said, no one is going to refer to you anymore as Jacob. They're going to refer to you as the struggler. How many of you are strugglers? Yeah, man, I'm there. I'm the struggler. I'm the wrestler with God. And he injures me, and I'm like, yep, I deserve that. Yep, I'm dragging this around a while. I was dumb. Shouldn't have done that. Like, it's no different. He goes on and he says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, if you believed in a monotheistic God, why would you have to say the Lord our God, the Lord is one? Because this is a reference to the Trinity. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. This phrase that's used in the Old Testament all the time like this, it is a reference to like, wait, what? David even said, the Lord of my Lord, when he writes one of the Psalms. You're like, the Lord of my Lord? Wait, there's two Lords? Yeah, there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together as Trinity together since the foundation of the world. This is the picture God has given. And then he says this, look at this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Is your heart one with me? Then love me with all your heart with all your soul, with all your strength. These words I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. They're to be in your heart. They are to guide everything you think about. They're to guide your thoughts, your struggles, your days, 
They are to consume you. These words I'm giving you, this was the first five books of the Old Testament, these words should consume you. You should be like, I gotta know this because I want my heart right before God. I want, when God looks down in his sight, I want him to see a surrendered heart. I want him to see a heart that says, I'm struggling, I'm injured, I'm beat up because I keep wrestling with you, but my heart keeps coming back to you. My heart is one with you. My heart is one with you. That is what it looks like to wrestle with God through your life. It's why it's called the persevering of the saints. Because the saints persevere. They keep coming back to this, even though they fail, even though they can't walk, even though it's miserable. This is what they come back to. My heart will be God's. This is so important that when Jesus was asked this question, he repeated it in Matthew 26, 22. He says, he was asked, teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? There's like almost 700 commands in the Old Testament. Like, which one's the greatest? And Jesus miraculously and perfectly answers. He goes back to Deuteronomy and he says, oh, that's simple. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. In other words, every other law comes from the idea of love God, love people. Every other law comes from that. And your submission to God's law means you are saying, I believe that this is the best way to live for others and for God. So I might understand why I shouldn't do it, but I'm going to do it. I mean, I joke around all the time about the laws of the Old Testament, right? We are not required to keep those laws to be saved. We, we need to understand them, though. For example... You know that bats are unclean animals that you're not supposed to touch and eat. Bible says that clearly. We, we got a virus that people are sick today in our church from because we like playing with bats. We thought we could play with them. We keep it safe. If you don't believe that theory, well, then it got eaten. Somebody ate it in the market. Don't eat bats. God says it's a bad idea. It doesn't mean you're going to go to hell if you eat a bat, right? That's not what it means, right? But it does mean bats are unclean. They're not good for you. Don't eat them. Stay away from them. And if you would have just went, oh, okay, that's a good law. Instead, we're like, well, I want to see why a bat's not unclean. I'm going to try it. Tastes like chicken. I think it's fine. Why can't we just listen to the Lord and like go, well, maybe he's wise about that. Or how about pork, for example? Pork causes some of the greatest like runoff and waste in our waterways that you can think of. I mean, it's terrible, right? And if you eat pork every day, your heart's not going to be good. I mean, we know this. Bad idea, right? Now, are you going to go to hell if you eat pork? Nope. I eat sausage links every Wednesday. And, I, and when I eat them, I think about the fact this is probably not a good idea. But then I also think if this gets me closer to heaven, I'm eating some sausage links. Like, I actually go through that in my mind. Because God has rules. He has things. And we just dismiss them like, well, I don't have to do that anymore. That's dumb. I don't need to know that. Why don't you know it, study it, learn it, and understand why? And then you can communicate with people. And you can tell them about the glory of God and the beauty of his laws, his statutes, his ordinances, and his ways. Instead of saying, well, I don't know what that means. I don't know. Like, we can literally help the world. Because God's given us this way to love him and love others through his word. 
Numbers says this, speak to the Israelites and let them, and then, oh, sorry, tell them that throughout their generations they are to make tassels for the corners of their garments and put a blue cord on the tassel at each corner. These will serve as tassels for you to look at so that you may remember the Lord's commands and obey them and not become unfaithful by following your own heart and your own eyes. In other words, all of us should be walking around with little tassels on. And then we see the tassel and I'm doing something I'm not supposed to do. Be like, oh, I know what that tassel means. I'm just going to avoid the tassel people. That's what I'm going to do. If I don't see the tassel people, then I can do whatever I want, right? And I'm not going to put tassel on me because I don't want to remember. Then it goes on. It says, this way you will remember and obey all my commands and be holy to your God. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I brought you out of slavery. You didn't bring yourself out. Jesus saves us from the slavery of our sin. We didn't save ourselves. And then he says, to be your God, I am Yahweh your God. And Jesus' name means Yahweh who saves. Psalm says this, trust in the Lord and do what is good. Dwell in the land and live securely. Which land are you trying to dwell in? Do you literally think about dwelling in heaven all day long? Or do you think about trying to keep what you got here all day long? Because Ahab was concerned about keeping what he had. And Jehu was concerned about doing what God said. That word securely means to cultivate faithfulness. It doesn't mean to have your peace and comfort. It means if you want to live securely where you live, be a faithful person. Be faithful to the commands of God. That's what that word means. Then it says, take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. That does not mean you get to tell God what your desires are. It means if you delight in God, you know what's going to happen to your desires? You're going to have his desires. Your heart's naturally going to be changed to pray the things he wants you to pray instead of your prayers bouncing off the ceiling for stuff you don't know if you should have or not. It's going to change you because now if this is your trust, if, the, if you're cultivating faithfulness, you want to love him, you see that he sees you and you see him and it is a relationship, then now it's like, oh man, I get to give him my heart and he's going to give me his desires because I'm so sick of desiring the garbage I desire. It's such a beautiful picture. And then he goes on to say this. He says, if you do that, if you commit your way to the Lord, trust him, he will act, making your righteousness shine like the dawn and your justice like the noonday. That's exactly what happened to Jesus on the cross. It was evident to everyone that was a righteous man and that is unjust. But what happened on that cross provided justice for all of us. It is the ultimate picture. Psalm 20 says, may he give you what your heart desires and fulfill your whole purpose. Again, if you already have your heart's desires as his heart's desires, now you want his purposes, not yours. What's his purpose? Well, his purpose is that none would perish, but all would come to repentance. Is that your message to the world? There's your message how to live financially stable so that you can have a great retirement and go to Florida and play golf. Praise God. I'm not saying that's not right for some people. I'm just saying, are you sharing that we need serious repentance in our lives? He goes on to say, Jesus says in John, I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus says, my heart is one with the Father. I want his will to be done. He says it again in Luke 22 when he comes to the end of his life, praying in Gethsemane before he has to go to the cross. He went out and made his way as usual to the Mount of Olives and the disciples followed him. They took Jesus' hand. He was pulled up. They're following him. When he reached the place, he told them, pray. 
pray that you may not enter temptation. And then they kept falling asleep. They kept going to the temptation of sleep. It's just so much easier to rest than pray. And you're out, right? How many times have you fallen asleep praying? You know how you prevent that? Walk. Get up and move. I've never seen someone fall asleep praying and walking. Never seen it. I mean, it'd be fun to see, right? You're like, man, did he just fall asleep walking? That's amazing. He goes on and he says, then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and began to pray. And he said, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. That's the cup of judgment. That was the final cup of the Passover. It was the cup of the judgment and wrath of God. He's like, nevertheless, not my human will, not my fleshly will, but yours be done. That's Jehu. Jehu is calling people to the will of God. Deuteronomy said this about the kings. However, he, the king, must not acquire many horses for himself or send the people back to Egypt to acquire many horses. For the Lord has told you you're never to go back that way again. He must not acquire many wives for himself so that his heart won't go astray. And all the kings of Israel and Judah had multiple wives, chariots, and horses. God says it in Deuteronomy 17, hundreds of years before. Don't do that. And then it says, he must not acquire very large amounts of silver and gold for himself. All the kings were trying to get silver and gold. And then it says, when he's seated on his royal throne, he's to write a copy of this instruction for himself on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. It's to remain with him, and he is to read from it all the days of his life. Every day you read this. Every day the king was supposed to read this and be like, I don't need chariots today. Nope, don't need any. I don't need horses today. God's got me. I don't need another woman. I got one and that's enough. Like he's, that's what you're supposed to read every day and the priests were to hold the king accountable to that. We need this today. We need to read this for ourselves. Matt, today you don't need more cars. You're good. You got a good car. It works. It starts. I know all the lights are on. It's okay, Right? Like, like you don't need more, you don't need to go over there and go back to something you left. Don't go back. You're good. Just keep following me. You don't need another woman in your life. You don't need more. No, just, it's the same basic stuff. You don't need more gold and silver. I've given you enough today. And Revelation 1 says this. It says, he had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth and his face was shining like the sun at noonday. When I, John, this is the apostle John writing, saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. That is, that is exactly what happened with Jehu and Jehonadad right before this, right? It's exactly what happened. And look at what Jesus does exactly like Jehu did. He laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, John, write. Write and speak and tell. That's why I'm giving you this vision, so people can make sense of the whole Bible, the Old Testament wrath with the New Testament grace of God on full display. Pick up the story again, and then it says, Then Jehu, he said, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So he let him ride with him in his chariot. When Jehu came to Samaria, he struck down all who remained in the house of Ahab in Samaria until he annihilated his house, according to the word the Lord spoke through Elijah. 
Look at what happens in the New Testament. In John 2, the Jewish Passover was near, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple complex, he found people selling oxen and sheep and doves, and he found the money changers sitting there. After making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple complex with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the gold and the silver, the money changers, coins, and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here, because you were supposed to go catch a dove, not buy a dove. You're supposed to go catch it yourself and teach your kids how to catch a dove for the sacrifice, not buy them. And then it says, get these things out. You're turning my father's house into a marketplace. And the disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That's what was consuming Jehu. This zeal for the house and the glory of God to be built, to be purified. Second Chronicles picks it back up. When Athaliah, Ahaziah's mother saw that her son was dead. She proceeded to annihilate all the royal heirs of the house of Judah. So, so in the northern kingdom, all this happens. Okay? She is Ahab's daughter. And she decides, if it's happening in northern Israel, I got to get rid of everything so that I can keep the power in the southern kingdom. Jehozabeth, the king's daughter, rescued Joash, son of Ahaziah, from the king's sons who were being killed and put him and the one who nursed him in a bedroom. They didn't even nurse their kids back then. These kings and these queens were so spoiled rotten, when they had a kid, they're like, I'm done, go find a nursing person. And it goes on and it says, Now Jehoshabeth was the daughter of King Joram and the wife of Jehoiada the priest. So the, pre, the current priest and this Jor, the king have this intermarriage. You talk about a messed up family situation. There's mess all over, connection. You think you have it bad if you try to follow Christ and your family persecutes you and the mess you have, that doesn't even begin to compare with this. And then it says, since she was Ahaziah's sister, she hid Joash from Athaliah so that she did not kill him. While Athaliah ruled over the land, he was hiding from them in God's temple six years. Six years he's hiding out. Where's God for six years? That's pretty much your whole college career. That's your undergrad and your master's. Done. Gone. You think it's the most important time? Six years, Joash has to be hidden. Nobody even knows he exists. He's hiding out. Why isn't God showing up? Why isn't he changing things? Why isn't, aren't things getting better? Like she has complete power over the southern kingdom for six years. Where's Jehu? Where's God's justice? John says this, an hour is coming and has come when each of you will be scattered to his own home and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I've conquered the world. You should expect this kind of stuff to happen in families. You should expect this kind of stuff to happen in the world because they don't want to do what's right in, their, in, in my eyes and they literally don't have a heart for me. So expect it. It's going to happen. Also expect people to change. Also expect people to repent. That's great. Expect both. Don't just expect one side. Expect both, Jesus said. And then he says, be courageous. So for six years, no one's being courageous. They're just letting Athaliah run free and rule this kingdom. 
Watch what happens. Then in the seventh year, Jehoiada summoned his courage. Jesus just said, take courage. Finally, the priest gets some courage and took the commandment or the commanders of the hundreds into a covenant with him. Then he made a circuit through Judah. They gathered the Levites from all the cities of Judah and the heads of the families of Israel, and they came to Jerusalem. Then the whole assembly made a covenant with the king in God's temple. They went back to Deuteronomy, and they pulled out the Deuteronomic covenant, both the covenant of the people and the king's covenant. They pulled them out and said, this is the covenant we made with God a long time ago. We're going back to it. Maybe you've left the covenant you made with Jesus. Maybe you're struggling. Can I tell you? Go back. Muster some courage and go back. God will take you. That's what he wants from us. And then it says, look at this. Then the whole assembly, oh, sorry, they gathered the Levites, they came to Jerusalem, the whole assembly made a covenant in the king, in in God's temple. Jehoiada said to them, here is the king's son. Everybody thought it was hopeless. There's no male heir left. How does David's line continue when God said he was going to keep a continuous David line? Because they're all gone. Woe is me for six years. We can't do anything. Woe is me. It's so bad. Everything's terrible. I use awful. Bloomington's terrible. Blah, 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 blah. God holds a remnant all the time. And when he wakes up that remnant, it has an impact. He's been holding this remnant, Jehu, and nobody knew. No one. He was hidden. Just the priest and this priest's daughter. Just as the Lord promised concerning David's sons. Second Chronicles goes on to say this. Goes on and says, this is what you are to do. A third of the priests and Levites who are coming on duty on the Sabbath are to be gatekeepers. A third are to be at the king's palace. And a third are to be at the foundation gate. And all the troops will be in the courtyards of the Lord's temple. No one is to enter the Lord's temple but the priest. That was the Old Testament law. The reason you can enter into here and worship, the reason you can enter into God's temple and you can have the promise of literally the throne room and speaking with Jesus himself is because Jesus said through his covenant he has made you a priest. He is keeping the Old Testament law. He is not disobeying the law of the Old Testament. He just made you a priest so you can obey the law. He didn't eliminate the priesthood. He opened it up. And then he goes on. Look at this. And then it says, No one is to enter the Lord's temple but the priests and those Levites who serve. And they may enter because they are holy. But all the people are to obey the requirement of the Lord. You must completely surround the king with weapons in hand. He knows this is not going to go well. This is treason against a woman who's been ruling with an iron fist and killed all of her family for six years. He understands that this decision isn't things are going to get better. This is going to be, this is going to be war. We're picking a fight. This is going to be problematic. But we got to be ready. We got to have courage. Anyone who enters the temple is to be put to death. You must be with the king in all his daily tasks. So the commanders of the hundreds did everything Jehoiada the priest commanded. They each brought their men, those coming on duty on the Sabbath and those going off duty on the Sabbath. For Jehoiada the priest did not release the divisions. Jehoiada the priest gave the commanders of the hundreds King David's spears and shields and quivers that were in God's temple. Notice he doesn't give them chariots and horses. Because they weren't supposed to have them. 
Then he stationed all the troops with their weapons in hand surrounding the king from the right side of the temple to the left by the altar and, the temp- and by the temple. They brought out the king's son to put the crown on him, gave him the testimony and made him king. Jehoiada and his sons anointed him and cried, long live the king. This is exactly the picture you see in Revelation. It's the same picture. Then it goes on and says, Joash was seven years old when he became king. When Ataliah heard the noise from the troops, the guards, and those praising the king, she went to the troops in the Lord's temples. As she looked, there was a king standing by his pillar at the entrance. A seven-year-old king. A seven-year-old. You're like, oh, that's not very scary. Well, no, that little seven-year-old king isn't scary, but all the guys with swords are. All the guys backing that king, that's scary. See, we're nothing as a church if it's about me. If it's about the pastor, about the pope, or about the priest, we're nothing. It's about the people of God mustering their courage to represent God in the world together and to hold one another to that. That's the beauty and the glory of God. Look at what it says. As she looked, there was the king The commanders and the trumpeters were by the king, and the people of the land were rejoicing and blowing trumpets, while the singers with musical entrance were leading the praise. This is a party, man. They're like, yes. Ataliah tore her clothes and screamed, treason, treason. Who's the treason one? I mean, we're dealing with this today, right? Everybody's, that, the Republicans are treason. Democrats are treason, treason, treason. Nobody's serving the Lord. They're all treasonous against God. We all are. No one wants to talk about that. We just want to talk about our nation. What about God's nation he's going to bring? And the treason we're all committing against him. Remember what happened to Jesus. It says, then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has blasphemed when Jesus was on trial. Why do we still need witnesses? Look now, you've heard the blasphemy. Isn't it interesting that people want to put on a show of repentance? Tear their clothes Show how repentant and sorry they are instead of just simple repentance, which is obey. Athaliah didn't want to obey. She wanted to put on a show. She wanted to cause a fight. She wanted to cause a scene. She wanted to make a ruckus. She didn't want to just say, man, I see now I was wrong. There's a rightful king. I'm I'm not supposed to be a queen. We're not supposed to have any queens. And so I surrender. I tear my clothes and surrender. I am treasonous. I surrender. See, that's the gospel. It's not about everybody else being treasonous. It's your heart before the Lord in his sight and what you're going to do. He goes on and says this. Then Jehoiada the priest sent out for the commanders of hundreds, those in charge of the army, saying, Take her out between the ranks and put anyone who follows her to death by the sword. For the priest has said, Don't put her to death in the Lord's temple. So they arrested her. She went out by the entrance of the horse's gate to the king's palace where they put her to death. Jehoiada made a covenant between himself, the king, and the people that they would be the Lord's people. We are going to do what God says. So all the people went to the temple of Baal and tore it down. You want to know if you truly are one and your heart is one with the Lord? How do you tear down the idolatry you see? Or do you just kind of go, oh, no big deal. See, when you truly have a heart for the Lord, you will see the idolatry in your heart. You'll see the idolatry in others' heart and it will break you. It will give you courage. It will motivate you to pray, to cry out to God. It'll motivate you to warn them and tell them that there is a death coming, that you're not going to get to go to the temple because you're going to be annihilated by the king and his soldiers. He goes on. 
Revelation says this, I saw heaven open and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True. And he judges and makes war in righteousness. His eyes were like fiery flames. Many crowns were on his head and he had a name written on it that no one except himself. He wore a robe stained with blood and his name is the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will shepherd them with an iron scepter. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, of God the Almighty. And his name written on his robe and on his thigh is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. These are all temporary kings, but there's a king coming who will be king of kings, lord of lords. It's over. No more. Then Jehoiada put the oversight of the Lord's temple into the hands of the Levitical priests. Look at this. This is the first time almost in the entire book of Kings you see someone giving up power. Jehoiada could take over the nation right now. He could literally be in charge of everything, and he turns it over to the priests Welcome to the modern church and how it's supposed to work. You guys are God's ambassadors. I'm just here to administer to you. We're all ministers. And it goes on and it says, whom David had appointed over the Lord's temple to offer burnt offerings to the Lord as is written in the law of Moses with rejoicing and song ordained by David. He stationed gatekeepers at the gates of the Lord's temple so that nothing unclean could enter for any reason. Then he took with him the commanders of the hundreds, the nobles, the governors of the people, all the people of the land and brought the king down from the Lord's temple. Jesus left his temple to go where? Down to us. They entered the king's palace through the upper gate and seated the king on the throne of the kingdom and all the people of the land rejoiced and the city was quiet. There was peace for they had put Ataliah to death by the sword. Joash was seven years old when he became king and reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Ziba. She was from Beersheba. Throughout the time of Jehoiada the priest, Joash did what was right in the Lord's sight. Yet the high places were not taken away and the people continued sacrificing burning incense on the high places. Over and over again, you see in 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, they did what was right in the Lord's sight, but they wouldn't go all the way. You know, you don't want to be too religious. You don't want to be too righteous. Can you be self-righteous? Don't be that. Yes, you can. But we should long for the righteousness and the glory and the beauty and the holiness of God in a way that's humble. They wouldn't do that. They wouldn't take down the high places. Those were off limits. Jehu eliminated Baal worship from Israel, but he did not turn away from the sins that Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit. So this is now the northern kingdom. That was the southern kingdom. They're worshiping the golden calves that were in Baal and Dan. Nevertheless, the Lord said to Jehu, because you have done what is well and carrying out what is right in my sight, there's that word again, and have done to the house of Ahab all that was in my heart, four generations of your sons will sit on the throne of Israel pretty much until the northern empire is slaughtered and goes into captivity. Jehu's sons sit on the throne. See, because God didn't make a covenant with the northern kingdom that David would sit on the throne. He could switch kings anytime he wants. In the southern kingdom, a son of David had to sit on the throne because that was the covenant. And then it says, yet Jehu was not careful to follow the instructions of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins 
that Jeroboam had caused Israel to commit. In other words, he wouldn't look back. He wouldn't look back and say, okay, I need to be careful that I'm not just repeating the same patterns that have gone on before. I have got to say, God, I am yours. My heart is one with yours. I want to do what's right in your eyes, not what's right in my dad's eyes, my grandpa's eyes, my great. I want to do what you say is right. Help me know that. And things that they did that was right, you should give them praise for that. Thank you, dad. Thanks, grandpa. Thanks, great. Good job. But you weren't perfect. And I'm not perfect. And I want to do what's on the Lord's heart. He goes on and says, In those days, the Lord, 2 Kings 10, In those days, the Lord began to reduce the size of Israel. Hazel defeated the Israelites through the territory from Jordan eastward and all the land of Gilead and the Gadites and Reubenites and the Massites from Aor, which is by the Aaron Valley, through Gilead to Bashan. Now the rest of the events of Jehu's reign, along with all his accomplishments and all his might, are written in the historical record of Israel's kings. Jehu rested with his fathers and was buried in Samaria. His son Jehoaz became king in his place. And the length of Jehu's reign over Israel in Samaria was 28 years. He fulfilled his promise to Jehu to give him a long life for being obedient. God is going to fulfill his promise to you to give you everlasting life forever if you're obedient to surrender and make your heart one with Jesus. It's a forever covenant. Philippians says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. He is watching. Don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition and with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses every thought, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any moral excellence, if there's any, if there is any praise, dwell on these things. Quit dwelling on all the other stuff. Dwell on the word of God and the things that he says are just and pure and lovely. Do you even know what those things are? Do what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, Paul says. And the God of peace will be with you. And Jesus said it this way, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. But I don't give, but I do not give you as the world gives peace. It's not this earthly everything's going to work out to your favor. It is an inner peace that allows you like Jehoiada to have the courage to stand for the righteousness of God. It is a deep abiding peace in that God is who he says he is and he will do what he says he will do. And my job is to take his offer, his free gift that he offers me to come up with him, to walk with him. And then he says, your heart must not be troubled or fearful. Is your heart troubled or fearful? Why? What are you afraid of? God is in heaven on his throne. He has not moved. Are we in some mess? Or is there, yeah, that's no different than we see through the whole Bible. But he's looking for those that will, in his sight, cry out to him and those that will say, I'm sick of the world's peace. I want your peace. And so I want my heart to be one with you so I can have the miracle of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You can do them as much as you want, Galatians says, because there's no law against doing those things. That's what God wants for you. Let me ask you, how do you see yourself in God's sight? 
Can I tell you, he just wants you to see for a moment the wrath you deserve, the justice you deserve, the mess you've made, just long enough for you like John to fall as a dead man. For you like Jehoiada to, or to Jeconab to fall before Jehu, to hear, are you with me? And if you say yes, then he says, come on up. I'll walk with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word. Lord, I thank you for First and Second Kings. I thank you for these stories that are told and repeated. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to even be able to preach your word. It's a gift. It's been preserved. It's been passed down accurately. Lord, it's been tested. And Lord, it is a gift. And I pray that we would take it seriously, that you have sent your eyes through your word for us to see the truth. And I pray we would respond. And Lord, if anyone here this morning or online does not know you, I, I just pray today would be the day that they don't rip their clothes in some display, but they just fall and say, God, help me. I repent. I turn to you. And if they do that, if they surrender, if they say, I want my heart to be your heart, I want to be right in your eyes, they, you will reach down with your right hand and you will grab them. And you will make a covenant with them so that they can know forever that you love them, that they can struggle with you from that moment forward and obey you in the power of the Holy Spirit that you give them. Lord, what a promise. No other religion, no one presents this kind of peace. Everyone wants to take over this world and you're the only one that's being patient enough to allow people to repent before you do it. And so we are grateful. And may we surrender to you today. Amen.